0: is he talks about religion and politics. Now, if you're sitting there and you are feeling trepidation about this, know that you are uh, not alone in that. Because this past week, I was reading uh, from this book called American Grace by Robert Putnam, in which he surveys uh, American Christians, talks about some of the trends that are there. And what he found is he found that the majority of American Christians would prefer if the pastor didn't talk about politics from the pulpit at all. 75% of evangelicals said, we don't want our pastors talking about politics. 80% of Catholics said, uh, please no, don't do not do that and 85 percent of mainland protestants said we prefer if our pastors don't cover political subjects from the pulpit okay so i recognize that i'm on thin ice in all of this because they go on and they say this if this many americans deprove so strongly of explicit political appeals then clergy who engage in politics risk censure from their members even worse in a competitive religious market they risk an exodus of members so if 85 percent of you are not here next sunday I will know exactly why. So why are we talking about it? We're talking about it because God's word talks about it. We're talking about it because in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul talks about what it means to be a Christian in a political world. He talks about what is it that our faith teaches us about government, its role, and our proper relationship to it. And so this morning, I do want to leave politics out of the pulpit, but what I want to hold up as front and center is the word of God and what it has to say about the right relationship between a Christian and the governments that are placed over them. And so I would invite you to join me as we take a closer look at God's word together. And before we do that, I think it's only right that we, pr- that we pray to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have brought us together as a family of faith and that you've given us the gift of your word. You've given us that gift so that we would know what it means to walk with you so that we would understand how our faith is meant to shape our daily lives. And so, Lord, as we're tackling a very difficult subject this morning, Lord, we pray that you would first and foremost give us humility. Secondly, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to say. And last but not least, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 13 with me. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that is on page 948, page 948. And the reason I want you to have the Bible open throughout this series is because I do want you studying God's word, taking a closer look at it, really diving in deep, underlining and highlighting thoughts, making your own notes. And again, if you don't have your own Bible, take the Pew Bible. We want you to have that. That is our gift to you so that you can study Romans together with us. We are looking at Romans chapter 13. And Romans 13 opens with a very, very shocking line. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. These words are shocking when you pause and you consider who it is that's writing them. First thing that we know about the Apostle Paul is that he was a Jewish man living in in a Roman world. Okay, his people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, had actually been conquered by Rome. They lived under the might and rule of the emperor. And as such, Paul knew what it was to live underneath a government that oppressed its people. He knew what it was like to have to bow the knee to someone who did not have his best interests at heart as a citizen. And so it's shocking that he would say every person should be subject to the governing authorities. But it's even more shocking when you consider that Paul is also a Christian. He believes in Jesus, and as a result, he and many of the church have already experienced a little bit of persecution under the rule of Rome. Because the Roman government, their official position was that you could worship any god you wanted so long as you also recognized that Caesar was divine and that you bowed the knee to his idol. And Paul, as a Christian, was not willing to do that. He says, I'm willing to honor the emperor as the one in governing authority, but I do not recognize him as divine and as a result was often thrown in prison for this. So the question is, why would he write something like this? Why would Paul say something so shocking, like every, let every person be in subject to the governing authorities? Furthermore, it gets even more shocking when you read the rest of the verse. He says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. See, what he's saying is he's saying the Roman Empire and its governments have been instituted by God. That it was a divine decree that they exist. But furthermore, it's even more expansive than that. He's like, there's no authority under heaven that isn't instituted by God. No authority except God and those that exist have been instituted by him. In all times, in all places, in every age. And we should sit back and be like, how can you write this? Knowing everything that we know about your political circumstances, Paul, how can you say these things? Where do you get this teaching from? But the answer, if we're truly honest, if we're putting God's word front and center, is that Paul gets this teaching from Scripture itself. That if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis... We find these words that after God made all things and created human beings in his image, this is what he tells to those people. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion over every living thing that rule, that moves on the earth. You see, from the very, very beginning, God instituted authorities to rule. That from day one, even before the fall, even before Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, God, upon making people in his image, says, you guys are now to have authority. You are to have a dominion over all that I have made. You are to care for it and steward it in the way that I designed it to be cared for and stewarded. He gave human beings dominion, authority, the power to rule. And so Paul sitting here saying, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by him, is saying something that's actually very, very scriptural. And so the question becomes, what is the purpose and role of government now? If it's been instituted by God, toward what ends and for what reason? And the answer that Paul gives is the answer he gives in verses 3 and 4. See, what he's saying is he's saying these authorities have been instituted by God for the purpose of carrying out God's justice in the world. They are there to reward good and to punish evil. Put quite simply and quite succinctly, the role and purpose of governing authorities is to execute godly justice in a broken world. That after the fall, God continued to institute authorities for the purpose of ensuring that the good was rewarded and cultivated and supported and that evil would be punished. To pass laws in accordance with his divine will. And what I think is so fascinating about this is, note what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say governing authorities have the ability to decide what is good and evil. They don't get to define what justice is. Rather, they are God's servant to uphold his definition of good, to punish evil as he proclaims it to be such. I think this is really, very, very important because what he's saying is he's saying that ultimately every authority, every government under heaven is ultimately answerable to God for the authority that they have. That God knows how he made his world, he desires that that world would be stewarded and run according to design. And that the governing authority's responsibility is to ensure that that takes place, that that's actually biblical justice. Biblical justice isn't simply the punishing of people. It's the upholding of the good as well. And so the question is, so, so how do we know if a government is really doing its job? How, how can we tell if a government is truly reflecting what God's will for the world is? How, how do we know if a government is truly rewarding the good and punishing evil? There's a German theologian who lived, uh, who was born during World War II and grew up in the years following. He went on to become a professor of systematic theology at Heidelberg University. His uh, name was Ulrich Dukerau, and this is what he says in reflecting on this passage and others in Scripture. He says, "...the crucial test in determining whether the institutions are concerned about safeguarding the common good is this. Do they protect and care for the well-being of the weakest member of society?" Do they protect and care for the well-being of the weakest member of society? Now, Dukerau makes asks that question because he knows what it's like to live under a tyrannical government. He'd seen what Nazi Germany had done to his own country and to the countries that it had conquered. But more importantly, as a Christian and as a systematic theologian, he read through Scripture... And one of the things that he noted, whether you go to the Old Testament or the New Testament, is that God cares about the poor and the marginalized. He cares about the most vulnerable members of society. He read through the Old Testament law, the Torah, and found within that law provisions in which God calls for his people to care for the widow, to look after the orphan, and to extend hospitality to the foreigner and the alien in their midst. He read through the Old Testament prophets where the prophets would come out and they would speak against kings. And after first denouncing the kings as having abandoned God, the second thing that the prophets would criticize them for is the ways in which they took advantage of widows in which they did not look after the orphan, in which they abused the foreigner and the alien in their midst. Likewise, he got to the New Testament and looked at the life of Jesus, Jesus who was willing to associate with Samaritans who were outsiders, who was willing to spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes who were not welcome in polite religious society, and who joyfully welcomed uh, the children, people who were seen as second-class citizens. And Dukerau concluded after all that, he said, this is the crucial test. For every institution, whether or not they are pursuing God's definition of justice, is do they protect and care for the well-being of the weakest member of society? Because that's the purpose of government. To uphold God's definition of justice. To reward the good. To punish evil. In ways that are in accordance with what God himself has decreed. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the point. That's their role. Three times in seven verses he says that these governing authorities are God's servants. This is their job given to them by the ruler and creator of all things. But then that question then arises, but okay, so what happens when a government abandons that calling? What happens when a government turns its back on God? What happens when a government isn't protecting the weakest and most vulnerable members of society, but is instead using its power to line its own pockets, to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable? What, what do we do then as Christians? How do we think about that? How, how can, on the one hand, you say that these authorities are instituted by God, and yet, on the other hand, acknowledge the fact that those who are wielding that authority often do so for selfish ends, and I think what's helpful here is to understand again what Paul is talking about. And to distinguish between the office and the person who holds it. To distinguish between the office of government, the office of the emperor, the office of those in authority, and the, and the flawed and sinful human beings who often occupy that office. Paul says it's the authorities, the governing authorities have been instituted by God. But he's also very, very willing to acknowledge the ways in which sinful people occupying those offices fall short of God's will. And again, I think it's, it's helpful here to make a, another parallel to help us really understand this. See, when you look at Genesis 1, God tells human beings to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. See, at the very, very beginning, even before the fall, God instituted the family as a gift to creation. He ordained that there should be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, who would have children, who would raise those children well, would teach them the ways that they should go, so that they would grow up to become adults who live out their lives uh, in uh, reflecting the purposes and plans of God. Family was instituted by God and parents given as a good gift. The reality is that there are many of us who come from broken homes, where our parents have not lived up to God's definition of what it means to be a good parent. Some of us have experienced the, the pain of a parent who was selfish. The pain of a parent who is more abusive than caring. The reality is because God instituted families and parents as a good gift to his creation, but parents are also flawed human beings. Now, does that negate the institution of family? Does that mean that family itself was a bad idea? The answer is no. God's intention for families is that they would still be good places. Places that nurture and lovingly care for and raise the next generation. In spite of the failings of those who may occupy that role. And what he's saying here is government is the same way. Government has the purpose of executing justice in the world for our good. That's what he tells us. Okay? They are God's servants for our good, but often those uh, offices of power, those seats of government, are occupied by flawed human beings. So how do we live in that tension? How do we live as Christians in a political world? Recognizing that these authorities, these governing authorities, are good gifts from God, but also being honest about their failings and their shortcomings. What do we do? I think the first thing that we do is we recognize, first and foremost, what our job is as the church. You see, if it's government's job to execute justice in ways that are reflective of God's will, it's our job as the church to proclaim the word of God to the world. That is our job. God has given us his truth. He's given us his word, and he calls us as his people to go out into the world and proclaim that word in all of its truth to all people, both those who hold the highest offices of government to those who are the least within our society. That is our responsibility to actually serve a prophetic role, speaking out to those in power and authority about God and about what his will is and holding them accountable to it. That is our duty as Christians. To be subject to the authorities, recognizing that they are instituted by God, seeking to serve them and to love them, but also remembering that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God is making his appeal through us. We've been given his word that we might speak that truth into our world, a world where people are too often confused about what truth is and how it is to be applied. That's our job. That's our responsibility. I actually love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this responsibility. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what it was to live under a tyrannical government. He came of age and was an adult just as the Third Reich was coming to power. And as a pastor and as a theologian and also as a German citizen, he wrestled with what he saw. And as he wrestled with scripture, he wrote these words. He says, "...the church has the task of summoning the whole world to submit to the dominion of Jesus Christ." She testifies before government to their common master. She knows that it is in obedience to Jesus Christ that the commission of government is properly executed. Her aim is not that government should pursue a Christian policy enact Christian laws, etc., but that it should be true government in accordance with its own special task. Only the church brings government to an understanding of itself. I want to be clear about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying here when he says uh, it's not our aim that, they, that government should pursue a Christian, a Christian policy or enact Christian laws. What he's saying is he's saying it's not the church's job to try and get government to pass laws that only benefit the church. That's what he's saying. It's not the job of government, of, of the church to try and get the government to pass laws which only benefit the church. No, that is not our job. We are not a special interest group that's begging those in power to give us a handout. He says, you are prophets of God given the word of God that proclaims to government what her job is in submission to the God who has given her her authority. And so when we call government to pursue justice, it's not just justice for us. It's not just justice for some. It is justice for all that reflects God's will for the world. That's what he's saying. That is our job as the church. Only the church brings government to an understanding of itself. We are the ones who proclaim the truth and the word of God to the world, both to those with power and those without it, that all might come to know the truth. So practically, how do we do that? Well, the first thing that Paul says that we should do is we should do our civic duty. That's what he says. Verses 5 and following, he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection. He so don't, you know, it's, this isn't about fomenting rebellion every time you get upset about something. You are to serve the government that has been placed over you. Be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. You see how practical Paul gets? He says, look, if the government is there as God's servant to enact justice, it's your job as citizens to pay your taxes. That they would do their job well and have the resources in which to carry it out. There's so room for grumbling about taxes. Joyfully give those taxes, knowing that your government has been given a responsibility. That's what he's saying, guys. I mean, people are giving these funny looks like I'm out of my mind. This is what Paul writes. He says, pay your taxes, do your civic duty. Talks about being in subjugation to your government. He's saying, serve those in power. Serve them for their good, for their benefit, and pay your taxes. The second thing that we have to do, and what we are called to do as Christians, is we are also called to exercise our voice, to proclaim that word of God to those in power. One of the most practical ways we get to do that here in the United States is vote. How do we hold our leaders accountable for their decisions? Well, we vote. If they're not doing what God has called them to do, we don't vote for them. And if they are, we give them our vote joyfully and prayerfully. But the other way that we get to use our voice in this society is we get to run for office. And I'm convinced that there are some people here at Trinity who you would be really good at that. But actually you are quite gifted when it comes to making wise decisions from positions of authority. And doing your civic duty and also exercising your voice, you have an opportunity to model what this kind of leadership looks like for our nation. To say, I understand because of what God has written in his word what justice looks like. And I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that that is how we live faithfully in this world. Some of you should consider it. But this is important because of the fact that whether it's in voting, whether it's in running for office, however we use our voice, However we set our priorities, those priorities must be directed and guided by God and His Word. In fact, I recently read a book um, from uh, a guy by the name of Joel Bierman. He was actually my professor of theology when I was at seminary. He recently came out with a book called Holy Citizens, in which he talks about the church's relationship to government. And quite honestly, I don't give this kind of unqualified endorsement very often. This is the best book I've read on our theology of government ever. It's fantastic but what he says is he says in however you are exercising your voice you should do so in a way that reflect the priorities of god's word in fact he says it so well it's worth quoting at length he says look there are many important issues out there it's easy to get confused by how many issues we have to make decisions about He says, but keep this in mind, the preservation of wildlife habitats, fair labor laws, just immigration practices, the curbing of violence, and the preservation of life all matter, but they don't matter in the same way or with the same urgency. God's will, made clear in his law and taught in scripture, is unwavering. The protection of human life matters more than securing human comfort. The pursuit of justice matters more than the pursuit of a desirable standard of living. Compassion shown to the marginalized or weak matters more than national self-interest and prosperity. These are simple standards that should be evident to anyone attending to the teaching of Christ as his church. It should also be evident that when God's law is directing the Christians' voting and further political activity, then it is all but impossible that any single political party or social action group will align perfectly or even substantially with a Christian's own objectives and standards. Did you catch that? He said there are certain priorities that, because they are priorities to God, have to trump every other consideration. Pursuit of justice more than the desirable standard of living. Compassion shown to the marginalized or weak, mattering more than national self-interest or prosperity. He says these are the priorities that God's word sets. These are the priorities that we must be bound to. He's like, but furthermore, those priorities don't usually fit neatly into the categories that we have established for ourselves. They don't fit neatly into any one single party platform. They don't fit neatly into any a single one uh, uh, po- a political action committee. Which is why basically what he's saying is he's saying how Christians vote and how they engage in politics should confuse the heck out of pollsters. Because we should be so bound by the word of God that we hold all parties to account to it. That when they're in step with it on one issue, we say, good job, well done. And when they're out of step with one issue, we say, that's not what God has decreed. And so we should evaluate, honestly, if we're really going to get practical with this, we should evaluate our voting patterns. If we are towing the party line in every single election, regardless of what our party does, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've missed it. And I hope that's making some of us, myself included, uncomfortable. Because we are to be guided in all things by the priorities of God. Nothing less. Nothing less. And we should hold our leaders to account. We should on the one hand say it is wrong when a government says that a woman has a right to choose and can end a human life before it's born. We should also stand up and say it is wrong for a government to separate their children from their families at the border because we have a responsibility over and above national self-interest and prosperity to care for the marginalized and the weak. And that doesn't fit neatly into a party platform, but it is the will of God. And it should make us uncomfortable. But we shouldn't shirk that calling, which is why we need the third and final thing when it comes to engaging with government. We need lots and lots and lots of prayer. Lots of prayer for our leaders, recognizing the awesome authority that they've been given. And lots of prayer for us as the church, that as we consider these things and use our voices well, we would do so in a way that honors God and advances the mission that he's given us. This isn't in Romans 13, but it is written by Paul, and therefore it's important to note. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verses 1 to 4, the following. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He says, Whether you voted for the person in office, your responsibility as a Christian is to pray for him or her. That we should pray that God would give that person wisdom. That they would carry out their office in ways that reflect God's character, his priorities, his truth, and his integrity. We should pray that in all things we would lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. I will be honest, I am sickened by the ways in which some of the politicking in the church has driven people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, in all things we are to pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. We must consider our public witness. And the reason why is because of what the ultimate end game is for us as the church. Paul says, This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who what? Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. See, that's our ultimate end game, ladies and gentlemen, as the church, is that more people would know of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And that those who rule, those who exercise governing authority, would do so in a way that opens more doors for the gospel. That when there is peace between nations, it means that doors are now open for missionaries to go out. That when people are given the freedom to share their religious beliefs and talk openly about the gospel, the good news goes forward. That when there is justice and righteousness, it creates the ideal environments in which the proclamation of the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, is resounded and called forth in every corner of the world. See, Jesus says it most clearly. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations nations we pray that there there would be justice that there would be peace so that as the government does its god-given job we as the church might do ours to know that at the end of the day we are ambassadors for jesus christ god making his appeal through us be reconciled to god that that is our duty That is our responsibility. And so we pray for those in power and authority so that the good news of Jesus may go forward. This is why Paul writes Romans 13. This is why, yes, it's uncomfortable. This is why it's also so important and necessary for us to understand the job that government has been given, the responsibilities handed to the church, and our calling who in all things bear witness to him who is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And it's with that in mind, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we do give you thanks that in all things you have a will and a plan for your world. And so, Lord, we pray for those in positions of authority. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed give them wisdom, that they would carry out justice as you have defined it, that they would reward the good, punish evil, and that in all things we as your church would do our duty of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. For we know that this is good and pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen.